I mean, I've always been interested in nature. Kind of mother nature's perfect animal, you know? Seeing Nile crocodiles and being kind of terrified. Welcome to the Nature Talks podcast. Welcome to another Nature Talks episode where learning turns to conservation. There are around 8.7 species of animals on the world and if we learn about them we can save them. By, by asking, you know, by talking to experts, we can expand our knowledge because I believe that understanding leads to care and when you care, you can naturally take action. Today is another amazing Nature Talks and we have got Cyan Williams here. Before we dive beneath the waves, Cyan, can you just speak about uh, what your work is? Can you, can you introduce yourself to us? Yes. Hi, my name is Sean. I'm originally from the UK and I currently live in Indonesia. Um, I've been living here since 2012 on a tiny island called Gili Trawangan, which is off the coast of Lombok. Uh, I decided to move here because I did find a conservation course where I could learn a little bit more about coral conservation, something that I've been passionate um, mainly marine conservation about for, for many years of my life um, and by joining this course that I did in the Gili Islands um, I got to learn a little bit more about a very particular reef conservation method um, called Biorock. Um, so after I did a two-week intensive course learning a bit more about that I was meant to then jump back on a flight to England and uh, continue my work in England but I fell in love with the island I really liked this method of conservation and I ended up um, staying here uh, now that I work for the uh, NGO that operates on the island called the Gili Eco Trust and I've been working with them for the last five or six years um, most of our work it takes us underwater so we're looking to uh, restore the coral reefs and um, protect what we've got left um, and also then actively trying to teach the tourists the businesses and the local community around here um, a little bit more about how they can um, protect the coral reefs and actually benefit from um, them in the long run as well that, that's I think amazing that's a that's a amazing start but then Sam before we you know go into detail where did this passion begin? Where did all these, you know, coral, coral, let's say, reef love begin and all these things? Um, it actually began from what I can remember is when I was about seven. I was obsessed with dolphins. I was obsessed with everything about the sea. And my mum bought me um, a little book, which was a, a scientific, way too scientific for a seven-year-old but the pictures were amazing about the ocean shore in England so every time we would go on a holiday to the beach I'd be taking this book out and learning about intertidal zones and different reef animals and bivalves and different um, animals that you could find actually on the beach and from there every Sunday we used to watch um, nature documentaries with David Attenborough which I'm sure is globally known <laughs> And um, yeah, it was just very fascinating learning all about nature, everything about the environment really fascinated me and I was lucky enough to grow up um, in a tiny village inside a forest so um, we were kind of always you know, pushed to play outside and uh, question everything that we could see. So when I was a little bit older and I learnt what 
the name a marine biologist was. Um, I was very narrow-mindedly, I just wanted to be a marine biologist when I was older. I wanted to work in the ocean and try and save marine species. Now, that's of course a very amazing sort of childhood experience. And one can of course inspire most of us who would be listening to this and who is present right now. But Sen, one of the maybe most difficult questions I'm going to ask you is that how did you feel the first time you dived in a coral reef? Was it like, let's say, sort of what you saw on the TV or was it beyond your imagination? How, how was it? It was, uh, it gives me goosebumps even now. It was magical is all I can say is when you dream about flying or when you see it on the, on, on the TV and on documentaries, it was exactly that. It was a case of you don't have to walk anywhere. You can be above what you need to see. And I, the first scuba diving experience I did was in Lanzarote. So it wasn't actually a very nice coral reef, but the amount of fish and rocks and everything to see. Um, and I was only 12 years old. So that was uh, something which really pushed me to want to do that in the future. And um, what I get, you know, the most joy out of these days, even if it isn't coral conservation, is actually giving people that experience as a dive instructor. So taking them on their first dive and showing them their first turtle and showing them a really healthy coral reef. And then, you know, seeing that that atmosphere of, of how it makes them feel. And uh, yeah, just wanting to be able to push that and, and to as many people as possible. I think that's amazing. So Sen, now let's go beneath the waves about what lies, you know, inside the, the coast uh, and where the coral reefs are. So let's say, what is a science brand coral reefs? Why are they just important and like, what, what are they home to? Are, are there a specific creature that if, let's say, coral reefs are gone, the creatures will go extinct? Yeah, I mean, there are so many very important ecosystems underwater. Um, you know, one couldn't be more important than the other, but the coral reefs are really paramount for so many fish species um, that we see anywhere in the ocean. They are known to cover less than 1% of the ocean surface. So I think it's like 0 0.04 or 0 0.5. Um, and even though it covers such a small percentage of um, the Earth's surface, then they're home to more than a quarter of the species that we find anywhere in the sea. More than 33% of every fish in the entire ocean will spend at least one part of their life on a coral reef. So in that sense, then they are critical for being a juvenile species, a juvenile habitat for every fish that lives out in the big wide ocean. Um, they will tend to spend their juvenile years being protected in some way by a coral reef. So they're super important for the basis of most um, you know, environments for different fish, um, but also for all the different food chains. Um, obviously, most importantly, ours, uh, there's so many people around the world that, that rely and benefit from coral reefs and from sustainable fishing methods um, to be able to catch and gather food. Um, but then also the value that you can get from tourism um, from a healthy coral reef is just amazing for coastal communities, especially in developing countries where we do find a lot of the coral reefs around the world. Now you spoke about sustainable fishing. I think one of the most things that I've witnessed myself over the past 17 years, which I think you also might have witnessed, is that as we go on, if we look at the pictures or if we look at the past, we can see that as you know we, we go on, fishes caught are decreasing in size. Have you witnessed that as well? Yes, I do. Um, we don't have, we're very fortunate around the Gilly Islands to not have any commercial fishing um, allowed, but we do see small scale fishing. We do see a lot of destructive fishing and we do see some um, 
a small amount of sustainable fishing as well. But even just from, you know, eyewitness accounts and some of the coral reef surveys that we do, which measure the abundance and the health of the reefs and the abundance of fish life that we find, sadly, we are seeing a decline on almost all of the reefs um, around the gillies and also further afield as well. Of course, that, that's drastic because the health of the coral reefs depend on the health of the fishes and whatever lives around them. And, and, I, I, and I've actually heard, I've actually read that sharks are very important, um, you know, creatures in the ecosystem of the coral reefs. What, what is their importance? Um, sharks being what's called an apex predator just means that they are regulating every population a little bit further down the food chain. Um, and what we are seeing, especially around Indonesia, is you know the more the more sharks that they're fishing out of the ocean, they're they're removing that apex predator, which actually then causes population explosions further down the food chain, um, which then in turn disrupts absolutely everything, all the way down to finding certain fish that are algae grazers, um, then we start getting algae covering the reefs just because further up the food chain, the predators of the um, algae grazers have been, you know, all but wiped out. Um, and it just causes this knock-on effect further down. So I think I, that's of course disastrous. So Sen, in the many years of your career, is there any particular change you have seen that climate change has had an effect on coral reefs? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Um, it's very, very obvious and very apparent when we see different climatic changes, especially underwater, just because corals are so fragile and so delicate and they, they, they live in such a, you know, a unique state. So um, when things like the, the temperatures of the ocean start to change, then the coral reefs will be the first things to stress and to start bleaching. Um, just before I arrived in Gillies, there was a major bleaching event in 2010. Um, and not to say that it's unnatural, but usually with um, this, the cycles that you find with Il Ninas and La Ninas, um, we get a cycle every six years where the ocean temperatures in, in Indonesia will rise uncharacteristically high. Um, and we do generally get a little bit of bleaching in these situations before it drops back down again. Because we have one in 2010, we predicted the next one would be in 2016. Um, yet in between that time, we had at least two more. And since 2010 and now it's 2022, we've had about four mass bleaching events. The largest one was in 2016, and it wasn't just um, an issue of the ocean currents changing and shifting the temperatures with the El Nino. Um, you could see the catastrophic effects of the climate change that actually um, you know, made it so much worse. And whereas we usually would predict uh, higher sea temperatures for between three weeks and five weeks, we actually had about four or five months where the sea temperatures were above 31 to 33 degrees, um, which meant a mass coral mortality around the Gillies, um, which is where we were studying. But then when they brought out a documentary a couple of years later called um, Chasing Coral, we noticed that, you know, we saw the same effect um, along mass parts of the um, Great Barrier Reef as well. Now, of course, it is drastic. I've seen coral bridging myself and I actually got one which is here, the, the coral reef. Which Martin? is, oh yes, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a coral reef. That's a brain coral, I believe. And for those who are here wondering, coral reefs are very important habitats and climate change, as you know, affect them very badly. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, coral reefs actually protect coastal coastlines from from you know waves and all these uh, different things, right? 
Yeah, this is it. So you get some corals like the fantastic, the brain coral that you've got behind you, which is a very solid, slow growing coral. And amongst that, then you also get other types of corals, which are slightly faster growing, um, but then they create massive branch structures. So by having this kind of barrier, like literally the reason why it's called a barrier reef is it's the first kind of barrier that a wave will hit. So they are designed and kind of created there to uh, dissipate the wave energy. So by the time it gets to the beach, it will actually slow down the energy and it will actually start to deposit sand rather than pick it up and take it away. So without even trying, it's it's um, rebuilding beaches back up and protecting from coastal erosion. Um, but then also protecting usually what's in front of it is uh, seagrass flats and mangroves as well. So um, it gets to the point where um, you know, coral reefs are paramount and as soon as we see a little bit of myth health um, or the decline in health of a coral reef, then we can start to see a knock-on effect on beaches, on seagrass flats and then on different populations that also rely on these areas as well. Of course, we know that you know all the ecosystems in the world are together like a chain. But, but then, Syed, what do you think, uh, I'm the person who's living in UAE or a person living in UK, how does their action, you know, affect the coral reef, let's say, in Indonesia? The link is, of course, there. What, how, how will my, you know, lifestyle affect the coral reefs? This is it. It's really, really hard when, you know, I found it a lot easier when I finally flew here and I settled here. You know, I see it in front of my eyes. So it's very easy for me to try and make a, a bigger impact than a lot of other people. If you lived in a city, for example, you know, my friends and family that are living in, you know, London, they, they aren't anywhere near a coastline. Um, but actually some of these populations can have an even bigger effect than, than local populations can on coral reefs. Um, Carbon usage is a massive one. Um, simply by having, you know, more appliances and having a very big electricity bill can cause a massive effect to climate change. Um, the amount that you use your car and your transportation. Um, we're very fortunate on the Gillies that no motorized vehicles and um, cars are allowed. So uh, we have to go everywhere by bike. So just automatically by, you know, choosing where you live or choosing your mode of transportation, you can make a massive effect and a massive difference um, in your carbon footprint, which can then ultimately start to slow down global warming. It can slow down and stop this um, ocean acidification and therefore be protecting coral reefs. In other ways, um, we find a lot of, especially in coastal towns in the UK, I'm sure it's the same as coastal towns um, across the world, uh, you see lots of um, beautiful objects which are in what's called the curio trade. So um, starfish and beautiful shells and things like this, which you know people like to buy and have beautiful ornaments in their bathrooms and things. And ultimately, this is also damaging coral reefs. Um, the things that you can buy in England, they're certainly not from English waters, so they're shipped from places like Indonesia and other places in the Coral Triangle in Southeast Asia, um, so that everybody can, you know, feel a little bit tropical in their homes. But if every single person that visited just our island alone, if everybody took just one bit of broken coral or one seashell, then what we're going to start to see is the degradation of the beaches, which then again causes more sedimentation from the land, um, and that will in turn also damage the reefs. So even but just by making conscious choices when you're on a beach or conscious choices when you're choosing souvenirs, um, you can make a massive difference to the health of coral reefs. Now, now, now Sam, of course, um, what's your idea, let's say, about um, diving? How can people impact coral reefs when they're diving? What are the safety precautions, let's say? 
Um, it's a really good question um, because most people, if you are a scuba diver or if you're looking to start diving, you already have some interest in the underwater world. And I'm very biased. I say 100% the reason why I want to scuba dive is because of all the cool things you can see. Um, some people, it's more for technical reasons or, you know, wanting a different adventure. Um, but tourism and diving can have a massive positive effect and also sadly a massive negative effect um, on, on coral reef health. Um, simply by choosing the correct dive center, which um, has very green issues. Um, they usually have um, some information on their website about how you can be a good scuba diver. Um, you can get different certifications through green fins and Paddy has a green award system as well. So you can actually choose um, a particular dive site, a, a dive shop um, and know that you're contributing to reef health already. Um, just by learning different things. Uh, one of my favorite courses to teach, which isn't directly to do with corals, is called Peak Performance Buoyancy. Um, a lot of scuba diving instructors absolutely hate this course. Ivan loves it, like me. Um, but it's a really good course where you actually learn a little bit more about your buoyancy. So if you think, um, we all know coral reefs are hugely delicate, not just um, fragile with the different you know, chemicals in the water and different salinity and temperature, um, but themselves, they're, they're more delicate than a glass or our bones. So one diver fin kicking along um, can damage you know, 50 years worth of coral growth. Um, and it's gonna take an extra 50 years, if not longer for it to recover again. So by having good diver buoyancy, um, being very aware of where you are in the water can make a massive difference when you're diving. Um, and also just by, by making a difference and by creating your impact as well, is we, we promote um, the use. We've got little tiny bags that you can fit inside your BCD pocket. And we sell them in all the dive shops on the gillies and um, the dive shops will kind of put them in. So if you do see trash underwater, you don't just have to be a recreational diver. You can be an eco diver just by seeing one, you know, candy wrapper or seeing a plastic bottle and actually picking that up and shoving it in your pocket or in your cleanup bag. Um, and ultimately, then you know you're not giving it a negative impact you're creating a positive one by removing something that it shouldn't be there whilst you're diving so every dive can be a dive against debris i've seen myself in, in animals that i've researched on you know plastic bags so so what's the effect of plastic in the particular place where you live on the coral reefs and the oceans um it's got a huge huge impact right now um we because we have two seasons here um right now we're in the rainy season um which starts in november and it ends in kind of march or april um but we see a massive influx of plastics um almost with every single tide um this year alone or no not this year last year alone we collected around 4,000 kilos of plastic just off the beaches um and we've only got a seven kilometer beach around the island so just with these volunteers we collected four four tons of plastic um but it's just the fact that there is so much of it it's so cheap you know it's so convenient and you know you unscrew a plastic bottle and you drink out of it for about five minutes but it will in in an ocean scene, it will take around 450 years to degrade. And when they say degrade, it doesn't mean it just disappears into nothing and creates food for the fish. It just breaks down into tiny little pieces, which are called microplastics. And a microplastic, unfortunately, is anything below uh, one millimeter. Um, so it's very, very hard to see, but there are 
thousands and billions and billions per cubic meter. Um, and as soon as this starts to get into any of the animals, um, you know, turtles, they eat plastic that looks like jellyfish, all the way down to some of the smallest fish that are actually ingesting microplastics. It starts to change their chemical composition and it actually adds hormones into their bodies, which if if the human population is eating these fish, then this is going to start to, you know, add different hormones and, and very dangerous chemicals into our bodies and our muscles. and slowly we're starting to see an influx in diseases which used to be so rare you know 20 30 50 years ago um, and now they're becoming more and more common is creating different issues um, with attention um, different growth issues and lots of you know different cancers and things um, and this is all all just from down to you know just our addiction to plastic that we're seeing sadly indonesia is the second largest contributor to ocean plastics only followed by China and we're not creating all of the plastic we're not creating any more than any other country it's just that the waste system here the management we have is is so poor that a lot of pollution and plastic gets kind of washed into rivers and out into the sea so send we're on plastic so let's say you said when you're walking on quarries or when you're diving it takes 50 years to you know build up again so we have got hard and soft coral. So let's yep. say a coral breaks up. Let's say if this coral breaks into half, how long will it take to, you know, get back to its original form? Oof. Well, the amazing thing about corals is even if a coral breaks, um, it actually doesn't necessarily die depending on whereabouts it falls. Um, we've had some fantastic examples, especially with the brain coral that you have here, um, that when an earthquake damaged some and they would have been more than 100 or 200 years old because they were meters and meters across they split right down the middle and because a coral can reproduce sexually and asexually it actually becomes two corals so as long as both halves are still very healthy then actually they can continue to grow totally fine on their own um the, the biggest issue we have is more with um faster growing branching corals so we get some which they, they're actually called staghorn and they they do look like a uh, stag antlers and they can grow up to one or two centimeters every single year um so they do grow a lot quicker um a brain coral like this would probably grow um less than a quarter of a centimeter every year so it really depends on the type of coral um it's very hard to damage a brain coral like a submassive boulder coral like this one just because they are so strong but we do get a lot of folios corals a lot of very um very fine delicate ones and yes it can take minutes for that one you know seconds to break it and it can take decades for it to grow back and recover we well, we teach course, some sorry carry on see, damage to the corals are, are natural right i've seen parrotfish going and biting chunks of coral and then <laughs> eat the pesky parrotfish yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are. And um, we, we find parrotfish, um, also turtles, they don't eat corals, but they eat the invertebrates that live inside certain coral species. So um, we do find some turtles that will sit there and, you know, rip off big chunks and throw it away. So what they are doing is, you know, quite damaging to the reef. But if as long as they're ripping off big enough chunks, then they're actually just spreading bits further afield. So it's kind of like a gardener on land propagating flowers and planting them somewhere else. So um, we we don't teach the turtles to do that, but we also teach divers to identify parts of broken corals that have been broken uh, by turtles, by parrotfish, by divers, and to see if this 
this coral is you know healthy if it can survive where it's laying then we can just leave it alone but if it's turned upside down um a coral photosynthesizes exactly like a plant so if you put a plant in a cupboard then it's eventually going to die so if we can pick up the coral in enough time and put it back up make sure it's stable inside a rock or something and um, wedge it then we can actually give a coral a second chance at life so we like to teach um, more experienced divers when they're doing their dive master internships how to become coral gardeners because generally they'll be diving for you know six weeks full time and if they have this knowledge and these skills to be able to actively help and garden the coral reefs and identify where we find damage then um, yes we've got a whole army of eco divers behind us to help us rebuild the coral reefs I think, that, I think that's wonderful because it's pretty amazing that we have got the problems and we've got the solutions so if we somehow get inspired to put that into action we can save the planet that, that's the fun part of it yeah. and, and the funny part is regarding climate change is that previous years it would take around one million years for volcanoes you know to produce enough carbon dioxide to within within the from within the earth's surface to create a catastrophe yeah. but we are building fossil fuels very very fast and we are changing our climate just within 200 years it's it's pretty dramatic the time it's we rapid. keep going yeah it so is a cataclysmic let's say the corals have got algae in them that's how they photosynthesize they zoo sontile that that's what i remember it was and it's the waste products from the algae that the coral used to make their exoskeleton yes so yes so can you tell more okay. about more about this to us yeah, so it's a it's a, a beautiful example of what we call symbiotic relationships. So where two um, totally different organisms are working in a benefit of each other. So the zooxanthellae, it would be able to um, you know survive and live floating around, but because we've got so many algae feeders such as manta rays, um, whale sharks, and lots of other filter feeders, it actually gains protection by living inside this coral skeleton and inside the coral polyp. Um, by doing so, the coral polyp um, gets a free food source. So it uses the zooxanthellae's um, energy and uh, uses that the sugars that it creates to start growing. And then it can actually take different um, dissolved minerals out of the seawater to create this uh, hard exoskeleton around the outside, which then in turn protects both of them. The biggest issue that we're finding with climate change is that this symbiotic relationship works perfectly as long as the corals are between 21 and 29 degrees for, for the most corals around the world. Um, when we start to see, um, you know, climate change and global warming, it's it can be defined as the, the literal warming of the sea. And as soon as the ocean starts to warm, um, the zooxanthellae, it carries on producing food, but it produces a toxic food for the coral. So because the coral is essentially being poisoned from the inside out, it will expel that algae and, and that's what gives it its color, which is why the coral seems bleached. Um, and corals can only, with their polyps and their tentacles, they can create, they can collect for themselves 2% of the food that is needed for them. And they get up to 98% of the food from this zooxanthellae. So it can survive for two weeks. It's kind of like a human going on a very extreme fast. Um, we can do it for a bit of time, but it's not gonna, it's not sustainable. So as long as the temperatures drop back down again, and the zooxanthellae will then start creating the, the correct chemicals um, for the symbiotic relationship to work again, it can then catch another zooxanthellae and, you know, recover. Um, 
before when we used to watch these uh, minor bleaching events which happen in the gillies around every april time um the the sea would warm up you know all of the divers would love it because everything gets a lot warmer and um the corals would start to bleach but only for two weeks but if it's anything you know longer than two weeks and that's when we start to see a massive issue and um the coral reefs go from a mass bleaching to a mass death and mass mortality um and that is what we're trying to fight um on a global scale i mean there are many things to fight against uh, climate change and all these things there are many places on the trip amazon rainforest great barrier reef but then you know the um corals are made of calcium carbonate and calcium carbonate dissolves in acidic um, situations so how has ocean acidification affected the cor- corals uh, back in your place um we haven't ever done any actual studies on measuring the acidity um up until 2021 when we've actually started trying to collect this data locally as well um but what we've seen every time that we do see uh coral bleaching we see the skeletons you know it's kind of like all of your skin and your muscles being ripped off um so they're already very stressed from this uh, natural variation we get every single year um but you know increasingly especially since 2015 and 2016 where the oceans are evidently getting more acidic we're starting to see the exoskeletons being a lot weaker so when we get big storms coming in which sadly come almost immediately after april so may june kind of time we get big uh, waves and big swell coming in and back in the day these corals used to be able to stand strong because their bones and their structure was so strong it could withstand massive storms and it could you know look after itself and it can start protecting the beaches but more and more recently we're starting to see um each time we get bleaching or we do see an increase in ocean acidification even if it's not something that's visible we're noticing it more with the waves and the storms they're actually creating even more damage than before we're seeing way more corals washed up on the beaches either recently killed um or some still living so um yeah it's it's a knock on effect because the worse the coral health is the less strong it is so then when we do see ocean acidification exploding um it just means the corals are getting weaker and they can't protect themselves so then essentially then they will see the mass erosion of the islands as well i mean i mean that's that's truly dramatic because some of us have not even experienced being in coral reefs and and just such wonderful places you know beyond words actually so sir now a question that i may ask you um I have seen, you know, play, uh, I have actually read bricks being replaced with recycled bricks with holes for providing homes for bees. So what do you think are the technologies we can have in our cities that can help bring coralries within our cities that's one point and uh, to help it thrive in our cities. Ah, do you mean by educating and, you know, what effects what things can we do in cities to help coral reefs? Yeah, what can we do in cities? What technologies can be introduced to, you know, bring coral reefs within our cities? Yeah. I yeah, I think I understand. I think um certain technologies and definitely following as many startups as possible. Um we're looking for more renewable energy sources not only to power our coral reefs that we have here, but if we could, you know, use solar and use wind and use all of these other fantastic renewables that are, you know, gaining interest and gaining momentum um in big cities and actually using them to cool cities down. Um 
I only have the experience on, on a localized scale, even just on our island, they've started to, you know, concrete all of the roads, which used to be dirt. They're cutting down the trees because they don't really like sweeping up the leaves. And in turn, by, you know, cementing and sealing the, the ground in and, and getting rid of all the shade, um, we're seeing this very small village heating up to the point where now, you know, we've got double the amount of ACs and that takes more energy and then that in turn is going to heat up the atmosphere more, which is then going to need them to use more ACs. So one thing that we're doing in, you know, on a micro scale is actually offering free trees to the general community. Um, if anybody has a spare one meter of land, then we're, you know, inviting them to plant a tree. So everything grows so rapidly here so within one and a half years i've got a three and a half meter tree in my garden that i planted from less than a foot high so just that impact and that effect of the shade that it has on a house um you know it's such a direct correlation um so there are some things like that that if we could start to re-green our cities and start to rewild our you know our lives and and how we see things um by planting more green places and being outside in more green areas, then it not only just brings compassion and awareness, but it also starts to cool down the climate, which will inadvertently help coral reefs too. I mean, it is always wonderful. I've also witnessed the amazing recovery nature has. If you're given the chance, it'll of course recover very uh, extraordinary. But then, uh, Sain, what do you think, let's say, um, about plastic pollution? How can we reduce that? I th what I think personally is, if we you know bring up the price of the plastic and reduce the ones which are recyclable, I think it's going to create an impact. What do you think? Yeah, this is it. And I think uh, talking about plastic, yeah, I misheard that. Talking about plastic, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I think um, the biggest issue that we have in Indonesia is it is so. I mean, it's it's very needed just because of the environment and everything. It seals things in. It gives. Um, uh, a lot of the lower econom economically placed people um, a chance to have you know items that they never had before so I never want to say I'm pro-plastic but it's actually bringing people out of poverty by giving them this chance to have certain things that they never had before but it is so cheap it is so disposable and there is no value in it so what we've start we've become a part of a big chain in Indonesia of what's called a bank sampa which is uh, essentially a recycling center so um, it brings value to different plastics that can be recycled so if somebody finds a plastic bottle on the street they can bring it to the bank sampa at the bank of rubbish and they can exchange it for money so it's not only is it you know cleaning up our streets and everything it's giving a local person that might not have a job in the tourism industry might not have um you know knowledge of the English language, they can still make a living from tourism because tourists come here and make waste. Um, they can then, you know, sell that waste to the bank sampa and then they can go back and, you know, have a slightly better life and start buying things in more bulk. Um, but the biggest issue here is Indonesia is massive. So there are many, you know, rules that they could put in place, but unless you have the education and the enforcement, then nothing's going to change. There was maybe about six or seven years ago that the island chief said, um, you know, we'll ban plastic straws, but without going to every single small warung, little cafe and, you know, educating them and you can't just rip the straws away. You have to say, well, you know, here's your alternative. Like you can have a nice fancy metal straw, but 
if a plastic straw costs 67 rupiah, which is like 0.01 cents, and a metal straw costs 20,000 rupiah, which is like $2, it's not financially viable for anybody to change from plastic. So we have to not only think of different alternatives um, that might be cheap, that might be disposable, that might be sustainable or biodegradable. Um, we need to educate people. So we don't have any authority um, with our NGO. Um, we don't. We can't lay down any rules, but also rules are a little bit of a waste of time out here. So then what we can focus on is education and teaching people, you know, not only that plastic is bad, but, you know, this is something that's even better. You know, bamboo grows everywhere. Papaya trees grow everywhere. So essentially we've got these, you know, fantastic eco products that, you know, should cost loads, but, you know, they're free. There's banana trees growing next door. You've got coconuts up there. Um, so by showing people that, you know, how their grandparents probably lived and saw as normal, it's kind of trying to step back in time and it might not be as convenient, but we might need to sacrifice a little bit of our convenient lifestyles just to be able to protect this planet for the future generation, not even generations plural, but just even the next one. So simply it seems that what we throw away doesn't actually go away. Exactly so, this, yes. Sign, of course, your, your main point and your main, your main work is coral restoration, right? So how does it work? Like, what is it all about? Uh, it's it's amazing. And, and the best thing is, is there are so many different types of coral restoration these days, just the same as with the amount of technology startups there are. There are so many engineers and scientists working in the field for different restoration projects. And the best thing of all, there isn't one that is the best. There's not one solution that is going to save our planet. There's not one solution that's going to save all of the coral reefs because every condition is different. Every health of the reef is different. The depth, there are so many different variables that need to be taken into account counts. Um, in the Gillies alone, we, we use at least four different methods and I specialize in two of them. Um, but essentially the one that we've been using for the longest period of time is called Biorock technology. And this is um, actually an electric reef. So it sounds a bit scary because we're actually putting electricity underwater, but we've created this technology. Well, I, we didn't create it, but we're, we've harbored this technology which uses electrolysis underwater. So it's actually taking the minerals out of the water that have been dissolved, exactly the same as what a coral does by um, using these corals to secrete its exoskeleton. We can take them out of the water and secrete it onto um, a metal structure. So by creating big steel structures and attaching electricity to it, we're actually creating the, the substrate that corals um, create themselves. And this becomes the perfect substrate for a coral to attach to. So using the biorocks, we're actually um, going back to the coral gardening, um, just like a gardener would on land, you know, you're going around, you're looking to find things that are damaged, things that are, um, you know, at risk. And we are finding ones that would not, that have been broken by storms or diver damage, collecting them and transplanting them to this coral reef, this biorock, which essentially is like an, a little allotment, a little garden plan. So in your garden, you can plant all the things you want to plant. Um, it only works for hard corals, which is the reef buildings part of the coral reef. Um, so we can actually sit there and plant cor uh, hard corals onto the structure. Soft corals will come along and inevitably plant themselves onto it. We find Gorgonian sea fans, um, we find ascidians, sponges, algae. Um, as soon as you put those hard corals in place where there didn't used to be hard corals before, it naturally starts to attract absolutely everything else that comes along with it. 
which is fantastic. So we've been using BioRock technology since 2002 around the Gili Islands. So we've got more than 150 structures, which create small barriers in areas around the island, which were um, previously had been damaged by either the storms that we had in 2010 or um, or anchor damage from the boats and from the tourism that's that's come to the island. Um, and yeah, inadvertently, we've you know started. We, we did it on purpose to be able to harvest um, cor uh, corals that were damaged from from different reefs. But then we've created a very strong structure, which is then protecting um, the beaches, and it's creating you know more sand to be deposited rather than to be eroded away. In more recent times, we've started a new course called Coral Propagation, and this is something that I, we started. Um, in 2018 so it's been going on for a couple of years now um, but this one is more finding a coral that has broken again we're never going to go around and collect or cut healthy corals off a coral reef but if you find any broken corals that are you know about the size of this pen lid is generally accepted um, it looks like a tiny amount of uh, you know a tiny little coral but depending on the species you can have between 50 and 200 polyps so 200 tiny animals that live in this one tiny section of coral like this um, the brain coral that you have behind you probably would have had you know between 500 and a thousand polyps just on that one section of brain coral um, once we found a few sections like this we actually cut it down even smaller so we cut it until it's you know around one or two centimeters large and this um, gives the coral a chance to think that it's um, a juvenile a baby coral again and then if you think about humans you know when we're zero to ten years old we we grow rapidly but then when we hit you know well for me 11 when you start growing older you don't grow as fast and you stop growing so an adult coral grows a lot slower than a smaller coral so essentially by getting one coral this size turning it into five baby corals all of a genetic clone of each other we can plant them in a series of you know like 35 centimeter square um, area and the coral will grow a lot more rapidly it will then grow together and fuse and then it will create a big super coral which will grow a lot quicker than a coral if we planted it about this size. I should have some better props with me as well. But using this method of propagation, we've got small nurseries all along the front, which um, are only between three and five meters deep. So it's really easy for us to teach courses and teach people about how they can propagate corals. But then also it gives our volunteers a chance to uh, routinely go and check them via snorkeling, make sure that everything's in the right place. And just like a gardener would do on land, if you get any weeds, um, algae or slugs and snails which we get you know different drupella snails and crown of thorns we can actually sit there and remove them because this is our allotment that we want to protect once these corals get bigger they then they can get moved to a critical area of rehabilitation around the gilly islands where we can actually then start to rebuild the coral reefs with these like super corals that we've we've created and grown and nurtured so are these nurses open to the public let's say if i want to come and see them how it works will, be, uh, will i be able to possibly see it Absolutely. Uh, the best thing about them, unfortunately for tourists, is that it's so organic and so natural that this particular um, garden nurseries, you can't really see that it is a nursery. So we make them all out of entirely natural materials. So it's essentially just we find rocks underwater and we pile them up. So they're a little bit raised off the ground so they don't have any sedimentation or siltation problems. Um, but when you're snorkeling, you can look over it. You can basically just see a little square of rocks with low of fish and an area around it with 
no fish and no rocks and no nothing. So we tend to take people actually out on tours to find them um, because they're quite hard to spot, um, which means if at any point we needed to leave or, you know, the whole the whole project was cancelled, all of our work, it just remains exactly the same. We don't need to garden it. We don't need to maintain it and scrub any metal or anything like this because we have butterfly fish and parrot fish that sit there and graze all of the algae off them. This is slightly different than the bio rock where we've got the, the big metal structures. They are, we're trying to highlight them as an ecotourism um, like a point of conversation as well. So they're also very shallow. They're between three meters and 10 meters. So you can snorkel over them. And because we use locally resourced rebar, which is um, just very malleable steel, um, we can bend them into any shape that we want. So the best shapes are little tunnels and little domes, but then you can utilize that tunnel and build a massive manta ray structure on the top or a dolphin or a, a turtle. So we can make these big, beautiful structures so that when people want to come snorkeling, they can go and see a turtle by rock there's one that has got a motorbike stuck on top of it so you can actually sit on it and get some photos so we can actually invite members of the public that might not be a scuba diver they might not you know know anything about corals to this point they can sit on a bike um, they can post that on social media and then they can start to understand a little bit more about why why is that underwater and then they might look at bio rock and then they might learn a little bit more about it as well so it's amazing for our you know when we've got reefs uh, reef researchers and marine biologists actually come and study the biorocks it's great for them because they can do this research on it but also for an entry-level environmentalist somebody who knows absolutely nothing they still know that there's a turtle biorock underwater so they want to go and snorkel on it and you know inevitably they are paying money into the ecotourism trade to actually keep this sustainable tourism happening i mean that, that's an amazing solution it's a very creative one as well so Sam, of course, this is the first method. There is one which they hold small nurseries in boxes outside the... Yes. Uh, so what's what's the thing with that? Like, which one is better, you think? Um, it's really hard to say. I'm very biased and obviously um, any reef scientist that's passionate to their own project is going to say that their own one is the best. But I would love to, the chance to be able to do ones where you actually keep them in aquariums. It isn't suitable for where we are um, simply because um, it's very expensive. So it's something where you can get a lot better research because you can actually sit there and um, you can make every single variable very constant. You can have a constant temperature, you can have a constant salinity, you can constantly monitor the nutrients that go into the tanks where you're farming your corals or, or building, growing your corals. Um, but it is very, very expensive. Um, what we've seen in the past is if we have uh, power outages, which being on a tiny island, we get routine power outages. This wouldn't be suitable for having corals in aquariums for things like that. And a couple of years ago, we had a major earthquake, which meant the island was evacuated for one month. So if we had projects that were, you know, very, very reliant on humans, then we would see mass disaster because um, at the time we had this earthquake, um, everybody left the island and there was only about 30 people left here and we were dealing with other things that wouldn't have been corals. So there are pros and cons to absolutely every um, type of restoration method. I think for this one, um, when you have aquariums on land is fantastic for research because you can learn so much. You can, you know, yourselves raise the temperature up one degree and monitor the stresses. Whereas we can't really do that underwater. It's all natural. We have to be there to monitor everything every single day if we wanted to see finite changes like this as well. Um, but, you know, the same as 
we've got the the ocean quest coral propagation methods which we use that you know in the earthquakes we we ignored them we totally abandoned them for for six weeks and they didn't they just looked amazing by the time we came back to them because they didn't need any human interaction um so in that sense we've got some positives coming out of things that are totally organic if you know if we had another earthquake and everybody had to leave this time then these these nurseries are just going to become so overgrown and so full of corals and so full of life um but that that's kind of the aim of them anyway so it wouldn't matter as much so sana what do you think someone who like me lives miles away from indonesia how can they take action um it's really good because i know that it's a great question so many people feel helpless um and you know envy my life that is you know hands on and very grassroots and we we are working on the ground um there are so many things that you can do even in cities and you know even halfway across the world you know that you haven't even seen a coral reef um there are lots of projects these days which have fantastic communications online you can actually adopt your own coral uh just via an internet website so that's great and you can you know follow the progress of your coral i know there's a lot of work in bali where you can adopt a coral and things like that um you know these days when everybody has spent a lot more time inside online then education is the best thing and education doesn't necessarily meaning following an academic route straight into um a science degree or something um simply by listening to more podcasts and and signing up and subscribing to things like nature talks and learning and getting inspired inspired this way um Netflix the rise of Netflix and and the amount of documentaries just by teaching yourself on YouTube and and the na- the nature documentaries um I I don't have a degree in marine biology but I learn all of my stuff um because I had a passion so as soon as you have that interest there are so many different routes that you can actually take to be able to work work hard and and find the experience like that as well So so to conclude what would be your one and only top message you want to give to all who will be listening to this um i think that it doesn't take the you know it doesn't take the person with the most uh, amount of academic knowledge to be able to help it doesn't take a person that has worked in the field for for years and decades to be able to help any single person any individual can make a difference um and it doesn't matter how small it is because these small differences and these small actions that we take have huge knock on and ripple effects um simply by you know just watching a documentary and then signing up to a youtube channel or following somebody extra and finding a volunteering um situation that is in your area whether it's a beach cleanup or a park cleanup um or a seminar or something on online these all these small actions if it was multiplied multiplied by many people then yeah that's how we're going to start creating waves and creating massive impact i mean that's wonderful then i mean it's a good thing for me as well Yes. So thank you Everybody so much Sam for joining us today. I can't thank you. You are very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, thank you very thank much you so for much. all of your hard work you've done um throughout the rest of it for the wildlife focus and for nature talks. I mean, I've always been interested in nature. Kind of mother nature's perfect animal, you know. Being now crocodiles and being kind of terrified. Welcome to the Nature Talks podcast.